Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July the 6th, 2017, and we are up to episode 2037 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Thursday, that means it is time for a listener call show. This is where you pick your phone up, you mash some numbers, those numbers are... 86665, think 86665, T-H-I-N-K. Leave me your message, best chance to get on the air. Make your point or ask your question in one immediate sentence. Hi, Jack, this is Joe Blow from wherever you want to say you're from. My question is, boom, or my point is, boom. Details are, if you follow that, much more likely to get on the air. Also call from a quiet area. If you're on a cell phone and you don't have at least two bars, move around till you do. And when you find two bars, stay put till you're done. That will make you more likely to get on the air. So what do we got today? I got a bunch of stuff for you today. Got a lot of uh, variety. Question on transitioning from military to civilian life for someone that's going to be retiring from the military in about three years. Thoughts on being fined for your own good. You know, seatbelt laws and stuff like that. And I'm actually going to give a little bit of backup to the Leos that are, you know, kind of, I wouldn't say entrusted, but... Um, Given this job, uh, maybe not as harsh as people would think I would be. Uh, it's another way to look at it. Question on dealing with chickens escaping and clipping wings of chickens and other fowl. Uh, question on selling a business, what to do to prepare for it. Thoughts on the coming Bitcoin user-activated soft fork and tax consequences when it comes to getting out of cryptocurrency after you got in. Uh, and using comfrey tea as a foliar feed. And a soil drench. We'll be talking about all that more in just a bit. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, business owners, would you like the ability to reach more than 100,000 TSP community members for as little as $5 a year? If so, consider advertising your business in the TSP Business Directory. A listing in our directory shows your support of the community and a commitment to value-for-value value exchange with other members. To find something or to be found, just check out the directory at tspbiz.com. That's tspbiz.com to learn more. One of my favorite people I get to work with at TSP is Chef Keith Snow of HarvestEating.com. Chef Keith can teach you to cook fantastic meals, develop a great food storage program, and more. He is also the source of my favorite line of spices and seasoning mixes that I use in all my weekly cooking. Check out his products, great blog, and podcast at HarvestEating.com. And before I get to your calls, let's go ahead and take a look at the year from history. This year's year from history is... The year 20, that would be 20 A.D. We have Decimation and Seaside Resorts, contributed by David Verne. Last year, the Emperor sent the 9th Hispania Legion to Africa to help deal with the growing revolt. Instead of keeping them together, the governor, Lucius Apronis, divides them into cohorts, 480 men, and deploys them to forts out in the desert, Tarfic, Tarf, Tacfarnia seizes the opportunity and continued raiding the countryside. He tried to besiege a fort, and the Roman centurion uh, Decreus felt that it was a disgrace for Romans to hide behind walls. He leads his cohort, which happened to be made up of new recruits out to do battle. They quickly break the retreat to the fort, uh, break, break and retreat to the fort. But Decreus stood his ground and was killed. 
Tagfarnius's men got tired of trying to besiege the fort and left, but when Apronius learned of it, he ordered the unit to be decimated. This was an old punishment and rarely used. The soldiers would draw lots, and every tenth man was killed. Tacfarnius tried besieging another fort, but it was held by veterans who drove off the attackers. By the end of summer, Tacfarnius's army was laden down with loot and set up camp along the Mediterranean coast for some relaxation. When the governor learned of this, he assembled a force and gave command to his son, Cassinius. The Romans drove Tacfarnius south deep into the desert, For this apparent success, Tiberius awarded Apronius triumphal decorations. My take by David Verne. It might seem odd that a governor would have his son with him, much less appoint him to lead an important military operation. But this was very common in Rome. For the Romans, especially when the Republic still existed, the military was held in very high honor, and before being elected to political office, most Romans had spent five to ten years in the military. It is reported that Apronius was a personal friend of Tiberius, which may be why he got the award. Now, two successive governors of Africa had received triumphal decorations, but both would be premature. I think there's a lot in this one, and one's very easy to look over. Decimated. Have you ever heard somebody, you know, something was decimated, destroyed, and you wondered where it came from? Decimated, like Desi, uh, from the metric, ten. Tenth, one in ten killed. Decimated. So, The, the word actually doesn't really mean what its root is, does it? Because we think of decimated, we don't think of like, well, my herd was, you know, my herd of cattle were decimated. So you lost one in ten? No, I lost them all. Well, then it was decimated, right? It's just a little interesting, you know, root word uh, history where that comes from there. The next would be, what is the mistake here? Is it giving, uh, is it giving this guy awards? Early, or was the mistake in itself letting this Tacfarnius cat escape? So they find out that they're all hanging out down on the beach, basically, right? And they send this giant force to go after him, and they just chase their ass south. If you if you were a military commander, and you knew that's what you were dealing with, and you wanted to decimate and then some your enemy, would it have made sense to send forces south of them, move in a pincher move, capture them against the sea, and decimate them, right? So that was a mistake. Then the other thing is, we think it is odd that this governor, and think of a governor in this time was way more powerful than what we think is a governor today, okay? A governor was like an emperor of a region serving under the pleasure of the emperor. Lots of power. And we think of it as odd that he would take his son and send his son to battle. Um, and, you know, we got a pretty good explanation of why there, but I think One of the things that I can say for the Roman Republic was most of these men that ended up in positions of power did come through the military. So when they were sending men to die uh, or risk their lives or be maimed or do ill, at least they knew what they were doing. At least they knew what they were asking. And on that note, I've heard people suggest that we should have a constitutional amendment that our president should have had to have served in the military. Um, while that would have you know, precluded... Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump from being president, which might seem like a good thing on surface. In the end, if you if you want to make a case to me that our problem with the president is who's qualified to run, I, I really don't buy it. Because the American people choose their president. 
If it's important enough to the American people that the American president have military experience, they won't elect one that doesn't. Um, I think you could even apply the same logic to term limits, because term limits won't really fix the problem, though I think it'd be a, a, somewhat helpful. But the reality is the American people have the opportunity to enforce term limits anytime they want to. They just don't have the will to do it. So tell me more about our amazing democracy slash republic that we live in. Um, just, you know, guys, the reality is, while I am a voluntarist at heart, and while I believe that relationships and interactions between people should be strictly voluntary. I'm a pragmatist. And the reality is we could have the greatest country on the planet. We really could. Some ways we, we sort of do. But we could be a hell... Like, like I've said before, being better than others doesn't mean you're good enough. Right? If you have a gang of thugs and one of them has a few, you know... Uh, you know, redeeming characteristics. Does that make him a good guy just because he's better in comparison to the other thugs? But we could. I mean, anything that you say we should have in this country from a standpoint of limitations and restrictions on government, the only thing that separates us from that is our own political will as individuals. And the reality is we are becoming weaker and weaker as a people. And that is creating a stronger and stronger government. If you want to know how strong a people are, look at their government. The weaker their government, the greater their strength. The stronger their government, the weaker the people are. And, and that's not just a reiteration of Thomas Jefferson saying that there is liberty when government fears its people. It's actually more of a direct consequence. The weaker you become, the stronger the state you live in will become. And especially in a democratically elected republic. Any change you want, if people really wanted it, you could have it. But they don't. They just want more stuff. It's my thoughts and my lesson from the year 20 in our history. All right, and with that, let's go ahead and take your first call today. This one on transitioning from military service to life as a civilian. Hello, Jack. This is John from Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And I have a question that centers on effective and practical strategies for transitioning from the military to civilian life. Uh, details are that I've been in the military for 17 years. I'll be retiring within the next three years, and I'm kind of at a crossroads in my life. Uh, I've been in the military ever since I got out of high school, and I've never really done anything else. So I just kind of want to get your thoughts on a practical ways to transition from military to civilian life, things I need to start doing now, and just basically any advice from a successful veteran such as yourself. Uh, thank you very much, and I appreciate your time. Bye. Well, first, thank you for referring to me as a successful veteran, and I would like to say that it might be more accurate to say that I am a successful entrepreneur and business person who is also a veteran. Because unlike you, sir, I didn't serve for 17, and I, I assume that based on the call, you're going to do 20 years and get your full retirement. I served for three. Uh, there's a lot of things about my service I'm proud of. I don't know that I would do it today, but the 17-year-old kid that I was when I joined the Army needed that time. I needed it. And I believe it helped me a great deal 
in getting out of the mindset that I was in and out of the place that I was living in and out of the, the, the concept that you know life owed me anything. And it, it gave me the concept of mission over task, and it did a lot of things for me. And, you know, when you're 17 and jumping out of airplanes, it, it, it teaches you you can do shit you don't think you can. All right? And I, I so I think it did a lot for me. But I'm going to tell you that from a standpoint of, okay, so I got out of the Army. I did fairly well with my military service. I had a valid skill as a mechanic, though I didn't really want to be a mechanic. Um, I, I'd done it professionally long enough to know it wasn't really what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. But I thought, people will care. When I go look for a job, people will care that I was in the military. They will care that I have leadership training. They will care that I have some equivalency of college credit. They will, they will care. They will care that I was willing to risk my life. They will care that I served with integrity. They will care that I received decorations. And the reality was most of them did not. Most people that I interviewed with for a job did not care initially. Once I got some experience and became somewhat valued in the industry of telecommunications, which is where I kind of anchored down, then they did. But it became a lot like I think college degrees are today. You have experience, and it's comparable to or similar to another candidate's, and you have a degree and they don't, or you have military service and they don't, it becomes a really great thing to have. Okay, I don't, I'm going to tell you it might be better for you today and with a lot more experience than, than I had. But I just want to kind of prepare you for that. That like What I thought a lot of people would care about, they, they didn't. Um, where it will matter is anybody who's an entrepreneur of a relatively small company where they make their own immediate hiring decisions, like if the boss says you're hired, you're hired type of thing, if they are a veteran. When I had the opportunity at every and every, I mean every opportunity to give a chance to a veteran, I almost always did. Because I knew something about them that I think civilians pay lip service to, but they don't. And that is mission over task. When I give someone who served in the military something to do, it is not a task. It is a mission. So whatever needs to be done, if it can be done, to accomplish that mission, up to blowing up a building or killing somebody, it's going to get done, metaphorically speaking, of course. But that is the mindset that you have with veterans, in my experience. And I have to say, in all of the years that I hired people, and this includes dozens of veterans, or gave them a shot, maybe I couldn't directly hire them, but I could say, hey, hire this guy. Somebody else hired him, but, you, but I want this guy on my crew. I've had one disappointment. One. It doesn't mean I've never met a dirtbag out of the military, um, but in all the times that I've had the opportunity, I've always been very pleased with my decision. One of the things you didn't tell me, or two things you didn't tell me, is what your rank is, and whether you're enlisted or officer, and you didn't tell me what your profession is. So that, that makes it a little limited with what I could say. What I would say is this. You have three years to figure out what you want to do and start getting ready to be prepared to do it. So if you want to stay in your career field and do something in your career field, you need to look for what are the opportunities in the private sector and in the, in the, in the, you know, the government sector, like GSA sector of that. And then what are additional training requirements that you're going to need beyond your military experience, even if they're tick-the-box certifications, and, and work on them over the next three years. Don't get out and then work on them. Start making contact with prospective employers now. Um, I'm going to be interested in coming to work for you. Here's my existing resume. 
what don't you see that you would want to see in order to give me an interview? You know, can you get through to some hiring uh, managers at different companies that they might even say, well, three years from now, we don't know if we're going to hire you. Yeah, I understand. But if you were, if you were considering me as a candidate right now, would you interview me? And if not, what's missing? What's missing? What, what course could I take? What additional things could I do that would make me desirable or more desirable? You know, reach out to fellow veterans who have transitioned already. Where are you? What are you doing? And how did you get there? Uh, these are all things that I would advise you to do. You're going to have something I didn't know, a full retirement. And even if you're enlisted, I mean, you're looking at a couple grand a month, right? You're looking at, you know, better than most people on Social Security have. So I would also say be willing to take some time and just decompress and figure out what it is that you want to do. What is it you want to do? But develop a story during that time that doesn't sound like you just laid around on your ass on unemployment, even though you won't get unemployment because you have a retirement income, for like six months. Because one of the other things I found is when I first started interviewing for jobs, I had taken a walk, right? We have talked about it before. I walked from Pennsylvania uh, to New Hampshire, uh, about a th roughly a third of the Appalachian Trail, to kind of get my head together. I thought it was a great story. When I was looking for my first job out of the military, I ran into a lot of people that kind of felt like, well, you're just effing off. Especially since I had done that, and then I came to Texas, and I spent about a month. Um, I did have unemployment coming in, so I spent about a month just kind of hanging out in North Texas and getting to know people and figuring out, like, where do I want to go? And when I started interviewing for jobs, like, what have you been doing? And I found that I could even say the exact same thing, like, be honest about what I was doing, But, but paint it differently and had a much better reception. Because my initial, like, I took a walk on the Appalachian Trail to clear my head and get, you know, kind of readjust to civilian life. And then I have this friend that asked me to come down and, you know, be his roommate. So, you know, we hung out together and I started looking and researching jobs and figured out what I wanted to do. And this sounded interesting, so I thought, I thought I'd apply. And that might sound pretty good, but it was, I, I could tell that it was actually really weak. And, and I, I, I ended up, you know, taking that more as, I, I, I took the opportunity that I had when I got out of the military to fulfill a lifetime dream, and I spent three months in the wilderness hiking the Appalachian Trail. And when I was able to get that done, I decided that it was time to look beyond the small town where I grew up in Pennsylvania, and I came here to North Texas because I have good friends and a good support network here. Never mind that I had one, and they came after the fact. And I, I left it at that. I didn't explain anything about how long I'd been there. And, and you know, I've immediately started looking for a job, which I did. I just didn't start applying for a month because I didn't need to. I left that out, you know. Immediately started looking for a job. But when I found this, I found this to be really exciting. And in the end, you know, the first job I got was shit. It was a job I could have got if I would have walked in and had a pulse. It was packing boxes in a warehouse for $5.50 an hour. And... The first good job I got, I got through a connection from a friend. And the next job I got after that, which was a move up in the same world of telecom, was in, was like guys that I went out and played darts and drank beer with, introduced me to another guy. He said, yeah, well, what do you do? And I told him, he's like, oh, you don't want to travel anymore? You could stay home. And that that kind of networking and having a friendship network is is really a great way to go. Also prepare yourself to, for the first time in a lot of years, not have people around you that give a shit who you are. 
Because, like, if you're in the military and you're a sergeant or a staff sergeant or whatever, sergeant first class, again, I don't know how long you've been in or an officer. It might even be worse for you. You know, you walk around, people care. People respect for your rank. The truth is, people pay lip service to the respect for the military, but nobody, nobody really gives a shit in their daily life. They might tell you thank you for your service once in a while, or, oh, wow, you were a colonel or whatever, but in the end, they don't really care. Not the way that your troops cared, not the way that you were led to believe everybody. And I find the, the people have the hardest time, full bird colonels and above. Full bird colonels, one, two-star generals, like you're like rock stars in the military. No one gives a shit. And they shouldn't. And you should expect it, but you will, right? Be prepared to deal with like what I call chaos and disorder syndrome. Like in the military, everything has a place. And everybody knows like basic things what to do. Even when you shop in a PX, the civilian spouses know what to do. You shop in a PX, and there's a long line to check out, and then there's like that space between the aisles, and the people like leave a space so people can make carts through. They stand back in the aisles and leave an opening, right? Because it's just the right thing to do, and there's a regiment to it. But when you go to a grocery store, and I don't know, this might be less so for people that were in that long, because see, I did all my service overseas. So, like, I think that, that makes it a little bit different, right, with, with that type of thing. Because, you know, you're, you're going to civilian places on a daily basis if you're stationed stateside. So that might be a little bit less. But I, I think there is, like, a whole, there's a whole adjustment phase. And I, I don't think you should underestimate... Um, the, 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 what it takes to do that. Um, since you'll retire, you'll have like a retired identity card, but you won't be, you won't be active duty anymore. And I can still tell you that when I got out, I ETS through a place called Fort Jackson to South Carolina. And when I did my final bit, and they basically gave me some money to get home with it all for travel, and they took my ID card. And they punched three holes in it, and they threw it in the garbage can. My heart sank a little bit. Don't get me wrong. I was, I was glad to be out. Three years was enough for me. But that had been who I was. Like, nobody even gave a shit about my driver's license for three years. But that military ID card, boy, you better have that. That proved who you were. And when there was an alert, and you had to get back in your own building, that's what you used. You know? If you had any kind of interaction with with, with someone in, in you know like admin or something like that was what you, you your ID was you and it was gone and it's not there anymore you realize I'm not going to put that uniform on the same way ever again it, it it takes some adjustment and getting used to I think it's totally worth it but don't underestimate that so I think you should plan some time when you get out to not go immediately to work a month or two something. You probably have some terminal leave you can save up so that not only do you have that retirement, but you have a full-time income before you transition to retirement pay. And I think that's a good idea, too. I think you should set some kind of a wild goal for yourself. Maybe it's not walk the trail, right? But like something that you, you may not ever have the chance to do again. You know, you know going to uh, Tahiti or something. Just a couple weeks of, of really letting go, letting go of everything. And I would advise you, honestly, to not spend that time unless you're married with family, like you know, extended family and all, and, ex and, and, and friends from the civilian world that are going to expect you to just immediately be who you were before you left, right? Like that's, that's probably not the place to be. Um, 
and then you know try to have a plan with what you're going to do with your career, and also look at the opportunities for entrepreneurship. Very few people can be told, listen, you can start a business, and you'll get a guaranteed salary of, let's say, $2,400 a year for the rest of your life, no matter how good or bad your business does. I mean, that's, that's pretty amazing when you think about the opportunity that, that that presents to you. So I know I went along with this one, um, but I know there's a lot of people in the military in this audience that are eventually going to transition, so I know it's helpful. And, I, and I've been kind of blown away over the last year and how many I've talked to that are in this situation, one to five years from retirement. And it's finally sinking in that, oh, shit, i got to figure out something to do with the rest of my life. The good news is lots of opportunities, lots of opportunities. It may take a lot of work to get the first one, but people are going to care a lot more about the military experience after you have a year of anything civilian under your belt. And, and look for those government GS opportunities, too. Some of those are pretty good. Uh, with that, let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Just a quick comment on uh, lack of common sense in certain applications of law enforcement. Um, me and a buddy were out paddling a canoe on the 4th of July, and I didn't realize the canoe that we had borrowed was uh, out of date on its tags and permits, which would have been fine. Um, but when we got pulled over, the conservation officers you know, gave us a chance to purchase our permits online, and that was all well and good. But what they couldn't stand for was the fact that we only had one life preserver in a canoe with two people. And, uh, you know, as as far as I'm concerned, it's nice that they're trying to keep everybody safe, but they slapped us with a $150 ticket, which I told them that I thought seemed pretty unproportional to the, uh, to the uh, offense that we committed. Anyways, I thought you might get a kick out of it. It's typical, uh, you know, keeping you safe at the barrel of the gun situation. So thanks for doing everything you do. Look forward to listening to your next show. Bye-bye. All right, so I'm actually not going to be hard on the, the, the guys to a degree here because I want to tell you what their discretion actually was. Their discretion actually was whether or not to cite you uh, for the offense. Now, I, I'm not sure, like, because of the way you describe it, it doesn't sound like they stopped you on the water. Now, if they stopped you on the water, then the fact that you don't have the life preserver, well, they that's... I'm not saying the law should exist, but it's a legitimate citation. If you were stopped with the vehicle and you know the boat in your vehicle and didn't have it, then I would actually go to court over that and you're going to get thrown out. Because you can't require me to have a flotation device in a boat that's not on the water. So let's assume they got you on the water. Um, again, their discretion there would be to cite you or not to cite you. Officers actually have very limited discretion when we get into like the, the, the penalty for the crime. Okay. Um, now there there are things an officer can do, uh, and they actually did exercise some discretion. They could have cited you for the registration and the flotation violation. Okay, they didn't, and in that they exercised discretion. I'm not saying they maybe shouldn't have exercised a little more discretion, but they exercised it. Right. Now I, I think that if they had truly cared about your safety, and that's really what it was about. Then instead of charging you a hundred and some odd dollars, they'd say, well, why don't you go buy a flotation device for your canoe right now? You know? And, and I'm going to tell you, when it comes to things like 
flotation devices and seatbelts and things that are safety violations. I feel that you should have a flotation device if you're in a boat. And you don't need a law to make me believe that. And in my boat, there's a flotation device for everybody in the boat. Not because the law says so, because it's useful and it does provide safety. But I believe if you want to kill yourself because you want to be stupid, that you have every right to do it. You have every right to do it. I don't believe there should be a law requiring that. You could make a limited case to me, because remember, I don't want to state at all, but you could make a limited case to me for flotation devices for minors who have not yet reached the age of consent to place themselves in jeopardy. Some limited case. But if a grown man wants to float around in a canoe with no um, no life jacket, you know. Because, I mean, look at this. When you, when you run a circular sausage, you wear safety glasses. Should you? Well, yeah. Is there a law that says that? You know, is there a law that says that? And, and, and the answer is no. Now, I can't prove it, but I'm going to bet that more people have been injured because they used a saw without safety glasses than have been injured or, or drowned because they were in a boat without a flotation device. Now, see, the statist would say, that's because there's a law. No, there's plenty of people that, you know, do that. And I would say that even with the flotation devices there, like most states, you have to have the flotation device in the boat. But it doesn't have to necessarily be readily available. It's like down in the holding shit. I've, I've been checked by warrants. We're just, oh, here you go. Yeah. Like that doesn't necessarily translate to actually helping you. Because most people can swim, right? Especially if you're with somebody else. I'm, again, I'm not saying you should have flotation device. I'm just saying that, like, if, if we actually look at that, You know, it's kind of like the alcohol versus marijuana debate. There's so many people that think that we should not legalize cannabis, or at least decrim—and I'm really for decriminalization of cannabis, right? There's so many people that feel that way. Yet, if you said, "Well, should we make alcohol legal?" Like, no. Well, tens of thousands of people die from straight-up alcohol poisoning, not to mention liver diseases and 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 and, and car accidents and everything else. I mean, the danger of alcohol versus cannabis to life. Is ridiculous in, in proportion, okay? But if you want to drink alcohol, and I do, then I think you should be able to. Most people agree, because it's legal. Because it's legal. See, if it were illegal, if alcohol were made illegal and during Prohibition and never were made legal again, you'd have the same stupid arguments in favor of it staying illegal that you do for cannabis today. Because the state is magic. That, that, that's how people think. Like The state is magic. If they say it's bad, it must be bad. So, again, I don't think you should have to do this, but in defense of, of these people doing their job, that's their job. And, and that's their discretion. They can't say, well, you know, you don't have your flotation device, but I'm going to cite you for having a half a flotation device, so you pay a half fine. If you want any kind of leniency on the fine, then you can go to court and ask a judge for that. And there's a reason that's actually a good thing, as much as I'm opposed to the whole damn thing. So let's say that I'm a cop and I come out and you don't have your flotation device. I'm a game warden, whatever, fish warden, boat warden, whatever does it in your, your jurisdiction. And I say, you know what? I like you. You're not such a bad guy. I am going to write you a ticket for not having your flotation device. Your fine will be $25. And I go down the, the way a little bit and see another guy sitting there at the side. And I say, hey, where's your flotation devices? And two guys are in the boat and... One guy, they only have one just like you did. And I go, you know, I don't like you. I'm going to write your fine for $100. 
right? So see, the state sets the, the penalties, and then the officer simply issues the citation, and then guilt or innocence and any kind of proportional adjustment due to circumstances is determined by the court system. That's how that system's set up. So you can only be so hard on the officer. Now, the other side of that is that officer knows full well what it's going to cost you when he writes that ticket. And I've had officers lie to me about what a ticket's going to cost them. I had an officer in Grand Prairie, Texas, um, where I went to a grocery store. I got back to my truck, and I realized I had left a bag at the cash register. I pulled up in the fire lane. I was guilty of that. I left the vehicle running with four ways on. I opened the door, got out, closed the door. I made it halfway to the entryway. I mean, I'm talking about five feet from the vehicle. And the lady that checked me out came running out to find me with my bag, handed me my bag. I turned around. There's a cop sitting there already with his ticket book out writing me a citation for parking in the fire lane. Yeah. So I plead my case. He doesn't give a shit. I'm not going to argue with him. And he tells me the ticket is a non-movement violation, so it won't call my insurance. It's not that big. And it's a $29 ticket. And I think for $29, I'm not even going to complain. So I go down to the county courthouse, actually like sub-courthouse, you know, uh, to pay my ticket. And I come in and I say, yeah, I got this ticket. It doesn't say what it's going to be on the ticket. And the lady behind the counter says, that's going to be $169. I said, well, the cops that wrote me this ticket says it's going to be $29. She says, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't do this. I just, you know, I, I can't fix that for you. You want to, you want to you know, go before the judge? And I'm like, well, since I don't have $169 yet. You can wait an hour, set a date. Well, this is great because I just kick it out. So I kick it out a couple times. And I end up going into the court this day, and it's like mostly like kids in this court, and it's this lady judge, and these kids are smart ass little bastards, you know, t talking to like like idiot to her, and she's really being hard as shit on him. And I get up there for this freaking you know parking ticket, and uh, you know I said, and it was Valentine's Day. I said, well, first the Happy Valentine's Day, Your Honor. And she laughed, you know, and like, and I explained my situation very respectfully, used terms like Your Honor and Judge and. She goes, and what did he tell you that ticket was going to be, John? And I said, uh, John, by the way, is my slave name for those of you that have been perplexed by uh, being billed by PayPal for MSB and seeing John instead of Jack. John, what, what did he say that ticket would be? I said, Your Honor, he told me the ticket was $29. And she said, well, if that's what he told you, then that's what it is. And she said, fine, $29. I paid $29 bucks and went on my way. And, and that, you know, 10 minutes in court... You know, save me 130 bucks, 140 bucks, whatever it was. And at the time, that was important to me. I mean, it was, I, I would still do it for 120 bucks, 130 bucks today, 140 bucks, whatever it was. But at the time, I mean, that was a difference, a big difference in the next two weeks of my life, what they were going to be like. And again, this is for parking in a fire lane where you have, so, but that officer, he either lied to me or he was a dumbass. I, I think he lied to me, so I wouldn't argue with him any further. And I think he knew full well, but he didn't have the authority to determine what my fine would be, but a judge did it for him. And I, I think we do have to. And, and I am the hardest person on oath-breaking piece-of-shit law enforcement officers. I really am. But I have a very loyal following in this audience of law enforcement officers. Because they know when it comes down to it, I'm a pragmatist. And I know most of them are doing the best job that they can. And I think we have to look at it that way. Because we're all in this shitty system together. And in the end, right now, 
The law enforcement we have is what we have, and we have to make the best use of it. And what I mean by that is, if you send me to court as a juror, and you tell me a guy molested a child, and my option is to set him free because I don't like the state, or send him to the state penitentiary, he molested a child. I'll throw him into the state penitentiary. If I had an opportunity, I, I, would, I would hurl him into a wood chipper. But if you tell me the individual was caught with 20 marijuana plants in his house, that's interesting. I see you've proven your case not guilty. Why? I don't see a victim. I don't see a victim. As a juror, I have that flexibility. No matter what anybody ever tells you, if you ever serve on a jury, you have that flexibility as a juror. You do. You don't let anybody tell you you don't. Law enforcement officer, many instances, does not have that flexibility. And yet he is or she is who we depend on to arrest that child molester. And they may end up in a situation where they have to enforce a law that they don't want to. If you can't see that far, then you're not being fair in your judgment of your fellow man. Just my thoughts. Because I say so many tough things. It's it, Once in a while, you know, you gotta, you got you to gotta look at it from the other side. Uh, with that, let's take another one. This is a real simple one. Hey, Jack. My question is, uh, what's the best way to keep hens from flying out of uh, electro mesh? I recently made a chicken tractor out of an old Murray lawnmower uh, chassis frame that uh, easily moves around the yard. And things were great until I took it back past the old chicken house where they used to be. And immediately they recognized the area and flew over the electro mesh and got back and weren't staying in very well. So I was wondering, do you clip their wings or how old do they need to be when you do that, if that's the case? And uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on your ideas. Anyway, appreciate it. Thanks. Bye. Yep, you click their wings. That's, that's it. How old do they need to be? Um, if you do it when they're young... There may be enough additional growth that it will require being done again in a few months. But as soon as they are fully feathered, when they have fully developed feathers, you can at that point clip their wings and it will be fairly effective. Most laying chickens, as they get older and they get heavier bodied, it will also be more effective because they'll have less of that lithe body where they can kind of jump and get a little bit of flap and get over uh, to help you out, I have posted a video uh, on YouTube, and I've put a link in the show notes from several years ago, and we clipped the wings of our geese, and we, we managed to catch that on video. While they're geese, the technique is exactly the same, and I think that video, especially the first one where we really got the camera in on it, is a better video to learn from than most chicken videos, because the wing's so damn big you can see the exact pattern you're looking for. You can see where the secondary and the primary feathers are and where you want to make your cuts. And in general, when you're clipping the wings of a bird, you clip one wing. And what that does is it destabilizes them. I want you to think about it this way. If you, you had an air, because you, know, you can't cut the wing off. That would be an amputation. That's bad. We don't want to do that, right? So if, if you took an analogy of an airplane, if you took one wing off the airplane, obviously it's not going to fly. Like That would be a bad thing. However, if we were to cut, let's say, a third off of one wing, that plane's not going to have any stability, and it's not going to be able to fly over any distance. It's going to flip over, right? Uh, some aeronautics engineer is going to say, well, there's this plane that can do that with whatever. You, you get what I'm saying. Um, so that usually works. 
And I've heard people say, well, don't clip both wings, because then they'll be able to fly. Not so much. So generally what I do is I clip a single wing. I usually clip the right wing. And the reason I clip the right wing is I'm right-handed. And you can hold the bird with your, your left palm kind of where their breast is and against your body. And you use your thumb and forefinger. To, this is with a, and you'll see with a goose, we use two people because they're big birds and they'll beat your face if you're not careful. But with a chicken, you kind of reach up under the wing with your index finger and clamp down with your thumb and pull that wing out. And then those feathers are right there and you just cut them with a pair of scissors. And all you want to do is make sure you don't cut them up too high because... In those quills, if you go high enough up, you can hit blood vessels and it hurts them. It's a lot like clipping a dog's nail too much and hitting what they call a quick. It can bleed a little bit. They're not going to bleed to death. And if you do, if you hear them really react to one, stop cutting and move further down and you know kind of look for it. But it'll go away with a little bit of pressure. So you're not. It's not like surgery. You're not going to hurt them. You know. And if you do, once you do it a time or two, it's easy. I do it with quail. I've done it with ducks that need it. I've done it with geese. I've done it with chickens. It's not hard. It's a little bit like just because you care for your animals, a little bit hard to do the first time because you're afraid. Not because you think it's bad. Because you're afraid you're going to mess it up. It's really easy. And if my video is not enough, just hit YouTube, clip chicken wings, clip chicken wings, clip chicken wings. Here's why I mentioned the two-wing thing. I would clip all the wings on one side. It should solve your problem. If it doesn't, take one of your problem children that keeps getting out and clip her other wing and see if it works. If it doesn't work, there's no reason to do it with the rest of them. The problem with ElectroNet is it's only usually about three foot high. And even with clipped wings, a chicken can usually get three feet up in the air. The good news is they seldom can get three and a half, four feet up in the air and get over without touching. Usually what they're doing is they're flapping, they're getting up, they grab the fence and go over. Well, if it's ElectroNet, you know what happens. They get zapped. So the other thing is make damn sure you're testing your, your ElectroNet every time you move it. And if you're not moving it daily, test it every day and make sure you're getting a good charge. So if they get up and grab on and get hit with it, and make sure you're using a, a charger with enough authority that it's actually a good enough deterrent, that they're not willing to stay on it and fight over it to get to the other side. And that should be all that you really need to do. With that, let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is John. Uh, my question is, what are some considerations when uh, selling a business? I've got several businesses, and it's beginning to be more than I want to deal with. And I was wondering what you uh, what you would advise on preparing to sell a running business. Thank you. Bye. You know, when you ask that question to a lot of people, you get a lot of kind of off-the-cuff, uninformed responses to it. You'll hear things like, uh, typical value is uh, five times annual revenue, or some will say two times annual revenue, or whatever. And, and those numbers really aren't that valid. Because what is the value of a business that does a million dollars in annual revenue but turns a profit of negative $100,000? And the answer is, unless you're looking at it like a house flipper that, or a, a, a tenant-landlord type situation where you come into a house that's in a negative equity state, but you see how you can fix it, right? there's not a lot of value in that business. That's not a business I want to tie a million dollars up in. Right? I want a cash flow positive business. That and most investors are not going to reach into their 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 briefcase, pull out cash money, and buy a business. They're going to finance the business. So they want the cash flow to be positive to them while they leverage what's called OPM or other people's money. So, 
with that in mind, I have four things that I think every business owner should consider when getting ready to sell their business. They are what I call hard value, timing, branding, and soft value. Okay, So let's go through them each. And I, I put them in the order of what I think the most important things are. So primary one is hard value. I, I think unless you have a, a very good idea of what you think your business worth is worth, and you have an educated buyer who's willing to pay that, that it really makes sense to have a third-party assessment, a, a qualified uh, third-party assessment to do a valuation on your business that takes everything into account, looks at your financials, your cash flow, your historical cash flow, uh, the current market space, opportunities for expansion, etc., and your goodwill, your brand, all of it together and says, this business is worth X. Because, well, number one, just like people get emotional with their houses and get insulted by an offer for their house, even though it's completely reasonable, more so people get like that over businesses because they put their heart and soul into building it, and then it has more value to them than it actually has street value. So part of it is a reality check for yourself, and that also lets you decide, do I really want to do this right now, which plays in the timing, which comes next. But the other reason is it's generally going to be necessary for many people to be able to buy a business to have something like that in the first place so that they can go obtain financing for it through some source, whether it be directly through a bank or investment bank situation or other investors or what have you. Right, Because, again, most entrepreneurs are going to want to use some sort of a leverage principle here. So it's just like you need an appraisal on a house. So, And it also gives you negotiation. So when you say, well, why are you asking $1.1 million for your business? Because I have a Blackmore you know, valuation on the business of $1.1 million. And at least it's a start. They might want to go lower, or you might even want to go higher, but at least it's a start point. Because there might be other things that you can point out that increase the subjective value and the person's willing to be a little more speculative and go up. Or you might be willing to concede a few things and go down because there's a number that you want. Because what you're really concerned with when you're selling, and never overlook this, the only thing you care about when you're selling a business, yes, I know you care about your employees, but if you care that much, keep your business. Because what happens to them is out of your control. No matter what you think you've done for them, it's out of your control when you sell. You care about how much money you walk away from the business with and having as little responsibility to anything connected to it as possible in return for that. Because sometimes it's like, well, you have to stay on for six months as a consultant or something to get the other half or whatever. And I, I really would prefer not to have that. So you get a hard value. The next is timing. If your sector is in a dec decline right now, but you believe there's a recovery for the sector, then you may want to wait for it because when a sector is hot, investors are willing to be more speculative and price in greater value than even the hard value assessment. Um, the other thing is when a sector is really hot, it is usually the case that sometime really, really soon it will cool down. So if you've been kicking it around and all of a sudden your sector heats up, you know you might want to capitalize on that. I know people right now that have sold their houses in this market and moved to less expensive further out markets or gone into rentals because the housing market is ridiculously hot and they don't believe it's sustainable and it's an opportunity to capture revenue and set it aside and use it when the market retracts. So like, look at the same thing with a business, so hard value and timing. The next is branding. Um, when you look at a balance sheet, you won't see something that says branding in you know the asset um, uh, column. 
What you will see on a balance sheet, if the accountant knows what they're doing, is, is basically the same thing. It will be called goodwill. For example, you know, McDonald's' goodwill is in the billions of dollars. You might think they serve garbage food to people. Yeah, but people know what the golden arches are. And there's a tremendous value in the brand that is McDonald's, and that's goodwill. Now, in a small business, that, that goodwill value might be low, or in some instances may not even show up directly on the, brand, on the balance sheet. Uh, because it's hard to prove sometimes, but it's there and it's in the mind of the buyer. So with branding, you want to make sure that your website looks good, uh, that your logo looks good, that there are people that are aware of your brand and there's a way to point that out. You, you have you know all of those things in a row. So you have a solid branding presence, which any business should have in the first place, but spiffing it up a little bit right before going to sale is, is really a good idea. This is certainly not a time for changing your brand, changing your logo, changing your tagline. The things that have worked that long and got you there are what you stick with, but you might want to dress it up a little bit, and you might want to put everything in order about like you know any kind of information you have on the value of your brand and things like that or customer testimonials that are heavy on branding. You want to make sure that at minimum, when somebody searches Google for your company's freaking name, they can find your website, things like that. If you don't have an active presence in, like, Twitter, but you set up a Twitter page that has, like, one tweet on it and three followers, you're better off deleting it than having it. Okay, because then it's just simply that's not how your business engages with customers. If the new business owner wants to engage with customers that way, then they're 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 going to you know want to do that, and they'll, they'll they'll take that over. If you have an active Twitter page that you've been kind of weak on or Facebook page or whatever for a while, you might want to get really heavy with it for about three months, so that when they when they look at that, since you have the numbers, you have the discussion and things like that. And the last one is a little bit more hard to pin down, and it kind of takes in social media as well, and it's soft values. Soft values are the forms of capital that your business has from the eight forms of capital that are not financial capital uh, or hard material capital, because those are going to show up really well on your business evaluation and uh, evaluation. I'm sorry, your business valuation. Um, but things like, well, how experienced, if you're leaving employees behind, how experienced are they? How good are they at what they do? Are they the best? You know, what's their experiential capital value in your business? You, when you're selling a business, you don't want to be the smartest guy in your business. You don't want to look that way anyway. Because that means the number one intellectual asset is leaving. So you want to highlight the experience that your employees have, for instance. Because, one, it's good for them. We talked about that earlier. It does make it more likely that they'll be retained. Um, what are all the things? What, 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 is, what is amazing about your business? Not because you say so, but because your customers say so, your employees say so, your partners say so. So that's really what you want to shore up is those four pillars of business value, the hard value, the timing in the industry, your branding, and your soft values. And uh, w without actually knowing more about the individual business, what sector you're in, what it's worth, what your annual turnover is, what the person would actually be getting, I, I, I can't do much more than that. Although I will tell you that the number one thing you're buying when you buy any business is a customer base. That's why you buy a business beyond everything else. 
you buy it for a customer base. So make sure that customer base is front and center on any type of proposal that you do toward any prospective buyers. Let's take another one. And with this one, I have two questions that came in like back-to-back -back that are so similar in what they're really asking. I'm going to play both of them and then answer them as a single answer. Hey, Jack, Centralist in North Texas. I uh, had a follow-up to your uh, all of the cryptocurrency conversation lately. Uh, more in regards to Bitcoin, uh, it seems from your uh, comments we have about the same amount of Bitcoin. And uh, my wife, who is also an avid listener, was encouraging me to uh, – uh, maybe take your, your heed on uh, moving out of it temporarily. Uh, she sees the value in it as I do, and uh, we're thinking about maybe uh, potentially dodging a bullet over the next couple months, but um, curious as to the tax implications coming out of Coinbase. So we're in the, uh, the vault right now. If we move that out of the vault into uh, just and leave it in, in Coinbase, Are there any tax implications by leaving it in U.S. dollars at Coinbase, or are there only uh, tax implications if we move that out of Coinbase and uh, into a our normal bank? Uh, further, I'm, I'm thinking about getting out of Coinbase anyway, uh, just with some of the, the stories I've been reading. Um, also, with, with the potential soft fork coming up ahead and, and who knows what, I've also heard it's probably a bad idea to uh, – leave any Bitcoin in an exchange, and, and really as a best practice, period, anyway. So trying to get into a, uh, a, uh, a cold storage situation as well. Curious as to your thoughts, mainly on the tax implications, and uh, uh, let me know what uh, some expectations might be. Thanks a lot for all you do. Keep up the great work, Jack. Thanks. Bye. Uncle Jack, this is Brian from Maryland again. Hey, I was looking to liquidate my cryptocurrency, I wanted to roll it over into another investment to avoid taxes. So my first thought was to try to fund an online brokerage account. None of the online brokerage accounts accept cryptocurrency. Any ideas how I can roll that over into another investment vehicle? Thank you, sir, for everything that you do. Have a good one. Okay, kind of starting with the, the last question, the second question, it, it doesn't work that way. None of this works that way, right? I've been saying that a lot lately. Okay, so, and, and this pertains to the first question as well on the tax implications. The IRS tax guidance on cryptocurrency is actually incredibly clear. And that tax guidance basically says that whenever you exchange that, that commodity, because they don't view it as a currency, they view it as a commodity, into currency that you then pay taxes on the gains or you take a loss on the loss. So if you bought Bitcoin when it was $2,900 and you sold a Bitcoin when it was $2,600, you lost $300, take a capital loss, $300. Conversely, if you bought Bitcoin at $2,000, sold it at $2,500 for fiat dollars, you pay taxes on the $500 gain, period. Now, do a lot of people just not do that? Yes. Are a lot of people not doing that inside Coinbase right now? Yes. Is the IRS snapping at their heels like a yappy little dog and probably will sooner or later, later get some sort of visibility into Coinbase? Yes. Hence, when I sold the portion of Bitcoin that I sold leading up to the soft fork into capital, I will now reserve a portion of that based on the capital gain and I will pay income tax on it. Because I do not want to hear from the IRS two or three years from now when they get a chance to audit Coinbase's books or look at users or however it works out, and there's a good chance they'll never see it, but I'm not risking it, 
and get a letter saying, well, you owe us taxes on you know $20,000 worth of Bitcoin. Well, no, my basis was, well, we don't care what your basis is. Who knows how that's going to work out at that point, right? So what you do is you declare a basis. And I want to point out that it's a very difficult thing to actually figure out when things have been purchased at different times and what have you. And there's no number inside Coinbase that says this is your basis. And there's different ways that Coinbase gets funded and things like that. So you declare your basis, like we used to do in stocks before they started requiring brokerage accounts to publish a basis. Sometimes that's a best guess. I'm just saying. And you pay the freaking taxes under capital gains, which compared to income tax for most people are actually quite low if you're at upper income levels. Okay, And you pay it. That's the cost of taking the profit. And rolling it into another brokerage account would not avoid that anyway. It doesn't work that way. All right? So you're talking like it's an IRA. So if we have an IRA and we roll it into another IRA, well, sure, there's no tax consequences. But let's say we have a, a bunch of Ford stock over at Charles Schwab, and we decide we want to start using Ameritrade and doing it all ourselves. So we roll our Ford stock over to Charles Schwab or from Charles Schwab over to Ameritrade. Okay, there's no tax consequences because it's still Ford stock. But if we want to put it into another investment, we can't buy, let's say, Lucent Technologies with Ford Motor Company. We have to sell the Ford stock, convert that to fiat dollars, and then purchase Lucent Technologies. Right? When we execute that trade, doesn't matter that it's still in a brokerage account, You've still incurred a profit, and you're still paying a capital gains tax, unless it's inside an IRA 401k, some sort of tax-deferred vehicle. Or unless it's investment real estate, and you've exceeded your... Well, not even going to go there. There's, there's issues with real estate, too. But where we can roll things into another property. That doesn't work with stocks. It doesn't work with bonds. It doesn't work with anything that's not already tax-deferred. So it's not possible. So when you talk about Coinbase, for back to the first guy now... Well, if I move it out of the vault in Coinbase, does that incur a tax issue? No. No. Because all you do is move it from your, your wallet that it's in a vault, which basically gives it a lot more protection. It's a lot more secure from a cyber standpoint. Into a online wallet. Okay, Bitcoin's not an exchange. Don't call it that. It is more secure than an exchange. All right? So now it's still Bitcoin. When you say sell and it becomes dollars... You've created a tax implication. Again, whether or not you report that is up to you, and right now the IRS can't tell you did it. Certainly, if you transfer it to a bank account, it becomes more visible to the IRS. But, again, I think sooner or later, the IRS will have visibility into Coinbase and other similar services. Because, from the standpoint of statism, it's a legitimate request. I don't think it's a legitimate request from a human standpoint. From a state standpoint, it is. And Coinbase is the, the Boy Scout of compliance when it comes to trying to do things legally. They do everything they're asked to do as long as it's reasonable. But when the IRS said, give us all your customer records, they said, here's two big middle fingers, no. And they fought it in court. I don't think the IRS will be able to get that. But the IRS is smart, so they'll go for it all so they can get, well, it's reasonable that we get trade confirmations like we do from a brokerage account. And again, 
it may be that they'll go to Congress and Congress will pass a law and they'll say that you know services like this have to provide this, just like PayPal provides a 1099k for the income you receive, and it used to be you know it was there but you could hide it. But now you can't because they issue it and they send a copy to the IRS. Just like Edward Jones or Ameritrade or E-Trade will do when you make stock trades. It's, that's, that's how the law works. You can trade to your heart's content, but when you realize a gain, you pay tax on it. And when you have a loss, you take the advantage of taking a tax deduction on it. Now, let's address the different concerns. You want to move it to a different investment. That's what the second guy said. I don't know what that means. Does that mean you want to buy a stock? Or does that mean you want to buy another cryptocurrency? Keep that in mind because now I'm going to go to the other person here. And this is all coming from the fact that I decided to step out of Bitcoin until the fork is over to a large degree. I'm still holding several thousand dollars in Bitcoin, but I got out of the way of this fork because I don't really know what's going to come of it. And I probably am going to take the last little bit out of Bitcoin one way or another right before the fork. But right now there's actually been some money to be made in Bitcoin because of this, this bouncing around and volatility that's having lead up to the fork. I personally think this is what will happen. I think many people will take a good profit piece about five to ten days out from the fork and send Bitcoin into a big decline. The fork either will or will not happen. It will go well or it won't go well, what have you. And on the other side of it, once it's all ferreted out and whatever is new is new and whatever is done is done and it's finished and people know what to expect, money will pour back into it and it will go back up. Hence, I want capital sitting there when it's really taking a beating. If it never takes a beat, it's not going to go way, way up during this, right? So if it never takes a beating, I can just re-enter my position and, yeah, i got to pay the man. But if it goes way down, now I can capitalize on that drop and I have that opportunity. And doing that with fiat dollars is how I decided to do it because, this is important, I also have a very large position in Ethereum. Had I not had a large portion of uh, position in Ethereum, what I may have done is I wouldn't have used Coinbase to do the trade because Coinbase won't let me go from Bitcoin to Ethereum directly. Okay, So I could put it in my Jack's wallet and use Shapeshift. I could move it over to Bittrex, do the exchange there, and I could put it right back into Coinbase. If you sell Bitcoin into Ethereum, you have no tax consequences. You haven't made any money as far as the IRS is concerned. So the way that you avoid tax consequences and move out of a cryptocurrency is to move into a cryptocurrency that you perceive to be safer for the time being. I think Ethereum and these ICOs, or uh, initial coin offerings, is going to do well for the rest of the year at least before people finally catch on to these ICOs are becoming a, a fundraising gimmick. Okay? So because all of them are done with Ethereum-backed tokens, Ethereum is going to have sustained value, at least through this software. And I think a lot of people, because of what I just said, are going to do the exact same thing. They want to get out of the way of the Bitcoin problem, but they don't want to pay taxes on it. So they're going to shift from Bitcoin to Ethereum, being the safest position, and maybe split some stuff up in some other altcoins for some potential gains during that. And then they're going to move back into Bitcoin, hopefully because what they're going to see, and this is what I'm betting on, a big rise in Ethereum and a big drop in Bitcoin. So when, Bit when Ethereum's high, you're effectively selling it by buying Bitcoin low. And then they rebalance their portfolios on the other side of this. That's what I'm doing. Again, I'm not telling you what to do. 
I'm telling you what I'm doing because I've been very upfront about the fact that I do trade cryptocurrencies, and I know a lot of you have picked up some because of me, and I feel it's only morally right that I disclose my thoughts and my actions right now. Now again, I am not a cryptocurrency expert. I don't even play one on TV. I got into Bitcoin and Ethereum at very low levels. It is very much for me like playing with the house's money here. It's very easy for me to be bold in these situations because I have such a small underlying investment. And I would rather pay taxes on a large piece of gained money than pay no taxes and lose opportunity to gain even more. But in the end, you have to make your own decisions. But you cannot safely, long term, go from fiat, go from cryptocurrency to fiat and avoid taxes. Now, I've seen some advertisements for buying Bitcoin and Ethereum inside IRAs. If you can actually do that, if it's not a scam, and I don't know one way or the other, and I don't trust it, but if you can, once it's in there, you can trade your, you can trade your ass off with it. And of course, it, it, it's subject to the tax implications of that IRA or 401k, i.e. either conventional or Roth. But otherwise, I think you're, you're taking a big risk. Now, let's, let's go a little further with this. If you spend it, the IRS also says you're supposed to pay tax on it. Okay? But if you move it to a wallet and move it to a wallet and move it to a wallet and buy a gift card with it and spend the gift card, good luck with that. Right? Good luck with that. Well, where's your Bitcoin? I still have it. Well, where is it? We'd like to see it. You can't see it. It's immaterial. Well, give us the, you know, give us the place where we can audit it. No, I don't have to disclose where my, my assets are to you. That's private information. But I, I, would, I would be careful even playing that game. You have no idea what government's going to do. My view is, with, 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 with cryptocurrency, this is the trade-off you make for it. As long as it stays in crypto, not your money, not your business, you don't get no taxes. Because you don't take taxes in Bitcoin or Ethereum, so you can't tell me I made any money. It's just like holding a stock that went up in value. And this is what the IRS says, by the way, right now, too. Until I execute a trade, I have not realized the gain. Therefore, there's nothing for me to pay tax on. I can buy, here's another example, Ford Motor Company. I bought Ford Motor Company for $1.69 a share. $1.69 a share. And I bought it in the middle of the financial crisis. I bought a lot of it. A lot of it. I won't say how much, but a lot of it. It was soon at like eight bucks. I ended that tax year. I didn't think it was done yet. I got a dividend paying stock that had ceased paying dividends, but, but is well known for paying dividends for a song. I held it. The end of that tax year came. My investment went up eightfold. I paid no taxes on it. I paid no taxes on it. Why? Because the IRS says you don't have to pay taxes on it. I don't have the money. I just have a certificate for a stock. Eventually, I decided to exit that position. I sold it at a little bit better than 10 bucks a share. At that point, I paid a capital gain on it. Why? Those are the rules, even if I don't agree with them. And I don't F with the IRS. I take every deduction that I can. I structure my life to, to minimize my tax footprint as much as possible. Anything I can justify as a legitimate expense that I could stand in front of an auditor with, with legal counsel and defend with authority, I will take. 
but I don't screw them. I don't screw them because they'll screw you back. And they have unlimited resources, and you don't. Cryptocurrency goes into fiat, you have a tax implication. I think when you're talking about, you know, your buddy uh, bought something for you from you in, for a quarter of a Bitcoin, and it goes up to a half a Bitcoin, or it doubles up, doubles in value, and you buy some gift cards with it and buy some stuff with it, I think you're pretty safe. But when it comes to actual trading, declare a basis, pay the tax. You don't do that. I have a feeling in the future a lot of people are going to regret it. If you don't want to pay the tax, stay in some form of crypto. Moving it from one brokerage to another or to an exchange or to a wallet doesn't matter. It doesn't change anything. And there's no rolling it over into another investment unless it's another crypto investment. I hope that makes sense. Let's take another one. Good morning, Jack. What concentration strength should Comfrey TV sprayed at and at what week intervals? Background. Uh, I filled two 55-gallon plastic drums, three-quarters full with Comfrey leaves and stalks, then filled them to the top with water. Four weeks have now gone by and a very strong-smelling uh, brownish liquid. Uh, smells like pig manure. Hose bibs have been installed on the bottom of the elevated barrels for easy draw-off. Uh, the smell is so strong, though, that I'm wondering if it is too potent to be applied full strength. Should it be diluted for application to tomatoes and elderberries here in southern Vermont? You are a homestead motivator and a phenomenal resource. Thank you. Joe from southern Vermont. Hoo-wee, that is a lot of comfrey tea, especially when I tell you what I'm about to tell you. Okay, so... I, I go by dilution rules of 10 and 15. If you are soaking soil, not foliar feeding with comfrey tea, I go at a 10 to 1 ratio. So for, uh, to make up a, a, you know, uh, 10 gallons, you'd use a gallon to make 10 gallons. To make 5 gallons, you'd use a half a gallon. Right? Um, you, you, you see what I'm saying, right? So it makes a lot. It makes, so if you're going to do foliar feeding where you're actually spraying it on the plants itself, I go at 15 to 1. So now you're using a gallon to make 15 gallons. And you're actually using a gallon to make 16 gallons because 15 gallons of water to one gallon of comfrey tea. And you can work that down to however much you're going to make at any given time based on you know having a sprayer or something to actually apply it with. So, even with a lot of leaf in there, you're probably looking at like 40 gallons of goop in each of those 55-gallon drums. That's 80, 80 gallons of, of, of comfrey tea, direct concentrate, which will make you 880 gallons at 10 to 1, and what is it, like 1,280 gallons at 15 to 1, something like that. Okay, so I don't know if you're going to be able to use that much. Uh, the good news is it works on everything, including pastures and lawns. So even if you went out and got yourself something like a uh, like a 50 gallon sprayer, you could throw in a trailer or and tow behind like a lawn tractor and just you know every couple of weeks spray your whole lawn with it. You, you could do that. It ain't going to hurt anything. Um, my experience has been that if it sits around long enough, it stops stinking. 
And I, I don't know, but I wonder if that reduces its effectiveness. If it means that it's kind of like it has a nutrient spike and then declines in nutrient, just like many things can do with a shelf life. Because I made up a few gallons one time, and I had a gallon in, in a, a glass jug, and I'd set it kind of under this planning table, and I forgot about it. And it had been like a year, and I'm cleaning shit out from under there, and I'm like, oh, oh, oh boy. I bet, I bet this is going to be bad. And I almost just threw it away without opening it. But it was a really decent jug. So I go down in the woods and, you know, I crack my head way back, as far away as like my arm stiff-armed out. And I reached down and I opened it up and I didn't smell anything. So I forgot, you know, I, I stopped pretending I was in the gas chamber in the Army and took a little sniff and didn't smell anything. Kind of lifted it a little closer and a little sniff and didn't smell anything. Held the bottle up and like sniffed it, and it had a little bit of a foul order to it, but it didn't smell like it does when you first make it. And I ended up using it. It didn't harm anything. I just don't know if it worked as well as it could have. So you might want to get it used. But so in the future, unless you have a place to quickly sell it to, like if you have hippies that are buying a gallon from you for you know twenty bucks or something, which would be a good little business model. Uh, I would make what you need as you need it only a little bit extra because I think your only problem is is how much you've made. I have never used it straight. My understanding is that's not a good idea, that it can actually burn plant roots and plants themselves at full strength. Uh, I've heard people using it as low as an 8 to 1 ratio, but again, I stick with a 10 to 1 ratio for soil drench and a 15 to 1 ratio for a foliar feed. I hope that helps you, and thanks for your question. All right, folks, and uh, with that, we have uh, wrapped up your questions. I wanted to take a second here and uh, give you my YouTube channel of the day. Um, I've started doing this, and I've decided this is what I'm going to do. I want to hear from you guys, and if you put TSPC YouTube, TSPC YouTube in the subject line, I'll know it's for this. And I want your suggestions for channels that you like and you would suggest for other people. I've decided this is my minimum requirement. Uh, I've been kicking this around, 1,000 subscribers, and that's it. I'm not going to worry about how many videos. If you have 1,000 subscribers, you probably got some videos in there. I, I just, again, I, I'm trying to do this. Yes, I want to help members of this audience that have YouTube channels that are getting them off the ground and things like that. But I want established channels with established quality. And some of these channels are really big channels, and they're just channels I've been subscribed to, to years, for years, and that's this today's. Today is uh, Josh Townsend and Son, uh, which is John Townsend and Son is the thing. The company's called Townsend, T-O-W-S-E-N-D, but the label is Jass, J-A-S, Townsend. I don't know if Jass was John's dad or it's short for Jason or whatever, but Townsend and Son. These are the people that do the historical reenactment stuff. They sell a lot of products like... Uh, historical clothing, uh, historical cookware, uh, for reenactments and things like that. That's not really what I dig about them. And it's not really what their channel's about, though usually there are people in the, the videos in period dress and things like that. They do a lot of cooking. The way, that's mostly what the YouTube channel is, is like, you know, cooking Johnny Cakes or, or what have you. They just did a recent one where they were at, um, uh, Mount Vernon. They did a bunch of stuff there, including like, uh, a fish stew and stuff like that. And of course, that's George Washington's home. And, you know, how they cooked back then, you know, both in the, the kitchen of the time, how they stored food and things like that. 
And I just think it's absolutely fascinating. And I've talked to a lot of people in this audience that are really big fans of that channel as well. Again, uh, if you want to look it up, it would be J-A-S and then space T-O-W-S-E-N-D and Sun. And if you searched for that on Google, you'd find them. The uh, YouTube username they use is just Townsend, but they're not that switched on. As successful as their channel is, they don't have like a custom YouTube URL. It's like the weird, you know, numbers or whatever. But they're linked in today's show notes. So that's my YouTube segment of the day for you to maybe take a look at. Next up, if you want to support this show and the work that we do, one of the ways you can do that is do your online shopping through tspaz.com. Go to tspaz.com, and if you shop from there, no matter what you buy, you help support the Survival Podcast. One of the things you'll find there are my reviews of Amazon items of the day. And today I have a really cool one because it's not really just an Amazon item of the day. Here's what I'm going to tell you. If you're an MSB member and you want to buy this item, don't buy it from Amazon. Uh, go to your MSB account, log in. I've just added them as a supporting vendor and get your discount, which is significant. Now, what is this product? Is it all survivally? No. This is as non-survival of a product as I could ever recommend. It's not a prepper item. It is not a survival item. It is an item for your kitchen. And I believe it's an item that if you're a taco eater, will, will improve your life. They're called taco tenders. You know when you go to restaurants and they have these little metal things and you order tacos and they stick the tacos in there so they don't fall over on your plate? You don't get your like your wet beans mashed into the side of your taco and have to pick it up and get beans on your fingers and stuff like that? And like if you eat half the taco and you want to put it down and drink a little margarita and talk to your friend before you finish it, you can set it back down in there and it doesn't like fall apart into little pieces. Those types. That's what this does. And these are made out of plastic and silicon because there's two kinds. There's the original, and they hold three tacos. And there's oven-safe ones, which are made out of like oven-safe silicone. It holds two. And they're just fantastic. And just go take a look at my write-up today on them. Again, they're called Taco Tenders, T-A-C-O-T-E-N-D-E-R-S. And if you want to get them uh, at a discount and you're an MSB member, you can do that. Everybody else, you can just buy them through... Uh, the Amazon links, which are still very, very affordable. I even have a little video showing you us making some breakfast tacos with them. But what's so cool about these is, and this is what made me buy them, because I, I, I'm, I'm running out of gadget space in my kitchen. Like, I really need a food processor to go along with my, my, my food, uh, uh, what do you call it? Um, it's not food saver. Dadgone, what the hell are they called? Uh, the Vitamix. Big giant industrial blend. I have a Vitamix, but not the Vitamix doesn't do any, everything good. So I really need to get a good food processor. It's another big item. I don't, I don't want to give up any more space in my cabinets and shit like that, right? So these things, I'm like, I don't know. And then I, I saw they stack, so like ten of them take about the same amount of space up that one does. I'm like, okay, sold. So I got four of them, and uh, then we picked up some more because when the family comes over, friends come over. If we do tacos, and that's an easy thing to do for you know family or friends when they come over, and everybody's happy and they can make them their own way. You know, instead of sitting there fiddling around with them, you just drop the tortillas into the holders and then throw the meat in them, hand them their plate, and they make up their own tacos really, really easy. And they're just fun, and they're not very expensive. I think the first time you make a meal with them, you'll be like, that was worth that, and from that point, you'll look at them as being free. And again, if you're MSB, they're even a better price. With that, let's get to our song of the day today. Our song of the day today is by a band I've never heard of, and it's a song I've never heard of. And I will be honest for you, they're kind of like a goth rock band, and I'm not about that style of music. And this is okay for that kind of music, but I probably won't be adding it to my playlist on iTunes Radio. Just probably won't. But that's good. And that's why I have, I have John Adam doing this, because you get exposure to a lot of different 
types of music. What I will tell you is the words are fantastic. The song again is called My Worst Enemy, and it's by a German band called Mono Inc. And it's from our album called After the War. And I'm going to read some of the lines to you. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about what it means to me, and then I'll play the song for you. You can decide for yourself whether it's your type of music or not. But here we go. I don't know what you suffer, and I don't know what you love. I don't know what you think. You're my worst enemy. I don't know what you look like. I don't know what you hate. I don't know what you believe in. My worst enemy. I don't know if you're craven, and I don't know if you're brave. I've never seen you smile. You're my worst enemy. And I don't know if you're desperate, because I never heard you cry. I don't know who you pray to. My worst enemy. There's no way out of the trench. Yes, I came to shoot you down. No way out of your grave. I saved my best shot and around for my worst enemy. I don't know where you come from, and I don't know what you dream. No, I don't know who you trust. You're my worst enemy. And I don't know what you sound like, because I never heard you sing. No, I don't know what you hope for. My worst enemy. I was never taught to question or taught to rule the roost. I only learned to follow fame and bigotry. I've never been a rebel and never, ever lose. I just die for all my sorrow. I'm your enemy. I'm your enemy. And I've skipped around there so that I didn't have the repeated chorus for you. Those are the basics of the song. That song can be interpreted a lot of ways. One is a lot of these wars that we send people off to fight and We tell these men and women that go to fight these wars, who I believe we take the most noble from us when we, we take people that are willing to go do this because they believe in what they're doing, even if what they're doing doesn't make sense. It is the most noble among us who, because they don't, they don't know what's really going on in the world, are willing to sacrifice their lives for their fellow man. And they go off to kill their fellow man, And they see that fellow man as their enemy, and there's a good reason to, because they'll shoot back at you and try to kill you if you don't kill them first. I understand. Trust me, I understand. But we have these enemies, both as the soldier and as the people that back the wars, we don't know anything about them, except what the TV tells us. We have no idea their hopes and dreams, or what they really want in the world, or why they do what they do. We've just decided they're the enemy because we're told so. But that's so much bigger than just warfare. Amongst ourselves, some of the people that we hate the most, especially online, because we don't understand them, if we actually sat down and talked, got to know each other, we might find that we all really want mostly the same things in life. But you see, the state and the states, and I'm using all the uppercase now with all the nations of the world, can't have that. Because they can't control their people if they don't have an enemy to point to. And just think about that when you hear someone is bad or someone is wrong or someone is evil. Do you know anything about them? Do you know who they are? 
what they've actually done versus what you've been told they've done, why they've done what they've done, how some of the things they've done we will say is so terrible, and yet what we have done as a nation or our leaders have done as leaders is just as bad. I remember when the invasion of Iraq began, and this is from my wife, so I don't think I'm putting anybody down, but some news report came out and it was about you know golden palaces and shit and all this money that they found and She's like, you can believe that? There's these people starving there in the streets, and look at what they have. And I said, how is that different from America? How much money is in our banks? How much value is in our museums? And there's people starving in the streets. And, and just before you start pointing to what someone else is doing and look at what you're doing and, and ask, how do you justify that? How, you, how do you justify that you do it? And you'd say, well, there's, you know, people have a right to their property and no one should make you give to other people and there's going to be poor wherever you go. And Okay, well, if that's the case for us, then maybe it's the case for other people too. But we're so quick to see anyone different as our enemy and actually the less we know about them, the more we're willing to be sold that lie. That's what this song means for me. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.